Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science, and welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Michael Provence about his new book, The Last Ottoman Generation. We also talked to Gamze Chavdar about her new article on why women vote for conservative parties in Turkey. And then finally, we talked to Shibli Talhami at the University of Maryland about our joint project, the Middle East Scholar Barometer. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Michael Provence of the University of California, San Diego, author of the new book, The Last Ottoman Generation, The Making of the Modern Middle East. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure. So as a political scientist, uh, this book was a pleasure to read. Uh, It's a really wonderfully rich history of an era that, as you point out in the book, people like me generally don't pay enough attention to. So tell us a little bit about this book and kind of what inspired it and, um, you know, what what do you think the major contributions are? Well, I mean, the book started uh, as an idea in when I was a graduate student in Damascus and I was researching an anti-colonial revolt that took place in Damascus in 1925. And I found out that all of the heroes of the the emergence of the nation, I you know, put that in brackets, weren't present. They weren't in the in the documents. And so I, I discovered to my surprise that Ottoman soldiers were vastly ex-Ottoman soldiers. I mean, the Ottoman army conscripted three million men between 1913, 12, 1912, and 1918, probably, were vastly overrepresented in this, this thing that had come to be called the Great Syrian Revolt. So I thought, okay, that's that's interesting. This is a different group of people than what we are accustomed to, to reading about. And then I, I found out that not only had they been active, these this group of people had been active in Syria, but that they'd been active all over the place in Iraq and in Palestine, and sometimes in the in the so-called Turkish War of Independence or the Anatolian Insurgency, as I call it. And so I I realized that that you know the the fall of the Ottoman Empire was in a way from people like that was a, was a kind of a unitary struggle uh, to, to, to rescue some kind of um, uh, uh, autonomy, um, you know, self, uh, self-control over the destiny of, of, of the region. And that the, the colonial regions, the colonial uh, experience was a unitary experience too. So I, that, those were my kind of my two beginning insights that the, the mandatory um, experience in the Middle East, the colonial period, the interwar period was really one thing that everybody experienced together and that the struggle against it was really one thing that everybody in the region experienced together, whether they were in Istanbul or Ankara or Jerusalem or Damascus or Baghdad. So those were the two, those were the, the kind of the, the insights that I got from the archives and from those fine grained sources and Said, so, okay, I want to, I want to write a, I want to, I want to trace the career of these people um, through the period. So that's that's how it started. One of the things you point out is that we've been reading these nationalist histories and national histories for so many decades that a lot of that gets gets elided. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, you know, it's, there's a, there's a couple of, I mean, we I divided into into uh, what we can call colonial historiography. Um, written mostly by, by French and British and then later American uh, uh, colonial officials and social scientists as well, political scientists, historians and so forth, who, you know, were, 
I mean, in a way, they were the architects of the colonial settlement in the first generation. And so they were interested in, you know, in, in, um, in uh, solidifying the idea that, you know, that there was, a, say, an Iraqi nation state um, or something like that. And then on the other hand, you had um, indigenous uh, scholars um, from the region, and they had the same kind of concern, you know. I mean, we have a, a, a colonial state here. We want it to be an independent state. And so, you know, the idea of Iraqi uh, nationalism and Syrian nationalism and so forth um, kind of emerged as well. And so there were these two strands, and I thought both of them were unsatisfactory. As in, well as the Arab nationalist strand, which basically creates this artificial distinction between Arab and Turk. Well, th th exactly right. And, you know, it, it came to seem to me that there was a sort of a, that, that pan-Arab nationalism was something that had actually existed far longer and and you know the idea of, of an undivided region was an older idea than any of those other things um so all, all those all those kinds of uh, ideas and and struggles were things i wanted to get at so you so you said that you selected uh kind of an exemplary group of uh former ottoman military officers for the most part and kind of trace their careers tell us about some of them and uh, what we learned from them well, most of them are forgotten, of course, um, for various reasons. I mean, they had very, very formidable enemies um, in the term in in the in the uh, in the in the colonial governments in you know the high commissioners and and um, a lot of them came to bad ends. Um, they were you know they died in battle. They were assassinated. Of course, the most famous person who who belongs in this category too is Ataturk, um, who is a. a a, a lower middle class scholarship boy in in the in Salonika, uh, you know, born in in the in the later decades of the 19th century, gets to experience this subsidized military education, um, and then goes on to become a staff officer. You know, as a brilliant student, obviously, like most of these people were, and um, you know, fluent in several languages, uh, kind of imbibing deeply the ethos of the German uh, general staff and, and officer training as, as kind of military intellectuals, if you like. Um, you know, others were Yasin al-Hashimi of Iraq, uh, who was the prime minister and a very formidable political leader. Um, uh, Jafar al-Askari, uh, also Iraqi. Uh, Yusuf al-Azmi, the, the kind of singular but usually misidentified hero of, of uh of Syrian independence and the martyr, and I use that word advisedly, I mean, he really was martyred um, on the field of battle against France in 1920. Um, so, you know, all these people were, were, were highly distinguished, uh, highly educated Ottoman officers uh, before they were anything else. And, and my argument is that that formative experience um, in their lives should not be, you know, shouldn't I mean, we, we shouldn't obscure that. It shouldn't have been erased um, because it gives a lot of insights into the development of the region in the period. So. In terms of where they come from in their context, I mean, you make a good case for uh, the Ottoman Empire as a modernizing uh, state, very much in line with what you're seeing in, in comparable European states elsewhere, particularly in terms of the military. Well, I think so. Yes. I mean, you know, the, we're talking about people who are the, the, the first, well, the second or third generation recipients of, of, of fully organized state education. Um, and, you know, the idea that the Ottoman Empire is less modern than, say, Europe 
you know, Britain, France, the United States, doesn't really hold up when you begin to compare these institutions um, and the emergence of these institutions. And we realize that, for example, if you were a, if you were a student at, at, at West Point in, in, at the turn of the century, you were reading the same stuff, literally the same stuff, uh, sometimes in translation um, from German or French, uh, as, as uh, you know, cadet officer cadets in Istanbul. So, you know, the, the modernizing career of the, or the, the, the career of the modern state in the 19th century is, is, is organized around a whole bunch of things that everybody seems to share. Uh, conscription, citizenship, um, the negotiation of the contract between ruled and, 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 uh, and, and ruler, uh, you know, constitutions that are contentious, uh, whether, whether uh, monarchs can be put in the position of being uh, constitutionally uh, limited monarchs and all of these kinds of things are taking the, 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 the widespread um, uh, use of, of public education, indoctrination also, of course, you know, into the, into the founding myths of the state and its, its, its ideology and so forth. All these things are happening everywhere. And the Ottomans are, are experiencing them at the same time. Um, so that, that was the point that I wanted to make, you know, that, I mean, to me, this is the, I, I wanted to strike what I hoped would be the final blow <laughs> against the idea that, that, um, that, you know, the, the, the Ottoman Middle East was somehow less modern um, uh, than the countries that came to occupy it, actually. Um, and you point out that uh, the Ottoman military actually fought the European powers pretty much to a standstill for much of the war. That's right. Well, if it hadn't been for the Second World War, you know, um, uh, Winston Churchill might have been remembered as the as the, uh, the the you know the 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 folly of Gallipoli. Um, absolutely, no. I mean, you know, the the most the most catastrophic defeats for the British Army in the sec in the First World War uh, were against the Ottoman Empire in Gallipoli and in and in Iraq. Uh, so yeah, it's. Um, you know, it's a, it's not the story that, and part of the, the vehemence probably, and the bitterness on the part of British and French policymakers was because of that, the, the colossal expense of actually defeating, you know, the, the sick man of Europe, as they said, um, they didn't, they didn't expect it to be like that. So then a big part of the book then is about this, as, as you put it, this kind of like unified resistance to the post-World post War I settlement um, in its various forms, um, whether it's the Mandate, San Remo, uh, and Lausanne, all of it. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this and kind of how your Ottoman generation, it, how does this play into the resistance to the imposition of these new Mandate states? Well, um, that's a great question. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you, um, that you mentioned those conferences, you know, San Remo and uh, especially San Remo is, it's completely forgotten today, you know, but this was, this was kind of the, this was the, the, the dream document of the European powers of, of what they were going to, how they were going to um, enact the partition. Um, it provoked immediate opposition in all of the capitals of the region when people got wind of it. And it's also the case that, you know, it, it provoked um, opposition in, in, uh, in Anatolia in a, in a very direct way that, you know, led to the, the, the necessity to renegotiate uh, the treaty with, with Lausanne. So I, 
what I tried to do in the book and what it seemed to me that the sources dictated was that there be two strands of, of political opposition. Um, there were the military officers who didn't put any store in the idea of negotiations or petition writing or, or appeals for, for fair hearings at the League of Nations. And then there were the civilians, people like Shakib Arslan and uh, Musa Qasim al-Husseini and Jamal al-Husseini in Palestine, who um, you know, had not been military officers and who thought that the idealistic language of the League of Nations, you know, the sacred trust for civilization and uh, self-determination for all peoples and Woodrow Wilson's um, 14 points and all of this other stuff, which also as other historians like, like Erez Manella have pointed out, were you know, propaganda efforts to, to, um, to discredit the Bolsheviks and Trotsky. But you know, some of these civilian leaders, they, they took these things at face value and they said, okay, right. Well, they're promising us, our, they're promising us justice. So we're gonna go in and, and talk to them and demand it. Well, this went on for three decades nearly and they never got a hearing and nobody ever paid any attention to them and they didn't get any. And so this, this is actually part of the story of the, of the destruction of the post-war institutions, international institutions that, that were supposed to guarantee peace and set the stage ultimately for the, the Second World War. Um, so I think that, you know, I mean, the, the mistakes of the League of Nations and the, 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 the bankruptcy of its, of its claims of justice and legitimacy um, absolutely set the stage for uh, the rise of fascism, the, the right-wing populism in, in, in Europe and elsewhere in the 1930s and ultimately the Second World War and the emergence of a, of a, more, a more carefully wrought, uh, less obviously um, uh, unjust uh, international dispensation with the League of Nations, with the United Nations in, in 1945 and 1946. There's so, a rather, uh, rather depressing litany that you, that you present of these uh, petitions to the League of Nations um, and just the cavalier way in which the committee simply ignores them. Yeah, well, I mean, not everybody ignored them completely, um, but the, you know, the, the, the issue of, I mean, it's really, the, I, I really, you know, I, I've come in the last couple of years, I've realized that what I was looking at was white supremacy. Um, and, you know, I didn't realize that I didn't put it in those words when I was writing the book, but that's really what, it, what we're talking about here. We're talking about a, a racialized hierarchy in the world and, and an operative system of white supremacy that makes it impossible for, for non-European peoples to represent themselves. They're, they're simply not allowed to make their own case. And the better the case they have to make, the less likely they're gonna be allowed to make it. Um, and I think this is a pretty potent, I mean, to me anyway, it's a potent message for, for international relations generally over the, over the, the 20th century. For sure, but then that brings you to the flip side and the other strand, which was the series of armed insurgencies, some of which succeeded and some of which did not. That's right, yeah, no, that was a, I mean, this is a, a, a kind of a, a pretty, a fairly bleak story as well, um, you know, from, from, uh, from Iraq and, well, there's, 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 there's Anatolia, uh, which is successful, partly because the British and the French are separated um, in their, in their uh, opposition to it. I mean, the French make a separate deal. 
uh, and the Bolsheviks make a separate deal. And so the, 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 the Anatolian insurgency is successful. There's a crazy bit of, of documentary evidence that I came across that still flips my wig when I think about it. In, in 1922 or 1923, the, the British government protested to the French because the French government were loading rail cars in Syria with, with weapons and material and hundreds of thousands of Ottoman um, uh, rounds of ammunition and shipping them by rail to the Anatolian insurgency, to the Kemalists, to use against the, the Greek allies of Britain in Western Anatolia and the British army. And I mean, it's just absolutely crazy to think about that, you know? And of course, the fact that that material, that that military hardware wasn't there in Syria to be looted. And I mean, think Iraq in 2005, to be looted and utilized by the, the insurgency as it emerged in Syria is, you know, I mean, this, that wasn't the French intention probably, but right. you know, they were trying to curry favor with the Kemalists. But you know, if that if those weapons had remained in Syria, um, the occupation of Syria probably would have been a lot harder for France uh, um, at about the same time. So there's a whole succession. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, I was just say, but it's really interesting the way that you show how each of the insurgencies kind of learned from the Kemalists, and uh, you know, so Syria, Iraq, and Palestine, they all have a kind of a common character the way you describe them. Yeah. And, well, and that's for sure. Face, they all face extreme brutality in, in the response. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, probably the first city really, this first open city really bombed from the air is Damascus, um, except for Hama, which is even less well known about, a, you know, a couple of weeks earlier uh, in 1925. Um, you know, the, the British innovate the use of, of counterinsurgency by airware, by air, air strikes in, 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 uh, in Iraq in 1920. Um, you know, for, for, for logistical reasons, because it's cheap um, and mobile. But uh, no, absolutely, the, the, the tactics, the, the, the rhetoric, the intentions are, are, they repeat themselves. And of course, in, to some degree, it's even the same people. Right. I mean, people like Fazil Kowakchi, you know, who's, a, who's born in Syria, fights in the Balkans as an Ottoman officer, fights in Libya as an Ottoman officer, fights in Iraq as an Ottoman officer. Um, and then ends up fighting uh, in Syria, fighting in Palestine, fighting in Palestine again, and becomes the commander of the, of the international forces in 1948 against the emergence of Israel. So you know, quite a career. There's a great book about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Leila, Leila Parsons has written a book about Fauzi al-Kawakshi called The Commander, hmm. which is, you know, a, a stirring story for sure. <laughs> But, but the, the, the story of these insurgencies and the lesson of, you know, kind of how they're waged and the, the ferocity of the colonial response, I think it really is central to shaping what those states became and the kinds of institutions that developed. That's true. Um, I mean, you know, the, there's a kind of a, there's a lot of really bitter ironies in the, in the, the formulation, the, the structuring of the mandatory colonial state. And, and one of them is that um, they undermined the legitimacy of civilian rule um, and made it appear, they, the, the colonial state uh, undermined the legitimacy of, of democratic institutions. Um, they set up 
parliaments and law codes and constitutions and, 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 and electoral rules that were based not on delivering rights or uh, justice or uh, services to the, the population, but rather to deliver legitimacy to the colonial, the colonial state. So the habit of phony institutions that are defective is, is baked in uh, in the colonial period. And so, you know, the, the, it's not surprising, and it's, I mean, it, it would be surprising if anything else took place, that countries like Syria and, and Iraq, uh, and also Turkey, you know, but, but particularly the core mandate states end up with military rule. They end up with, with military officers overthrowing civilian leaders because the civilian leaders are all compromised. And the institutions that they're trying to organize are all compromised. And so, I mean, from borders to, to, to elections, to constitutions, if we look at the states of the region, we can say that they are, they are all designed to be defective by the people who, who, who designed them, who, who created them. Uh, you know, they're designed to be small, impotent, um, incapable of, of, uh, of, of being, you know, having regional heft uh, uh, in, any, in, a, in a number of different ways. And so, you know, the, the, the misery and the bleakness of the, of the region is not an accident. It's a, it, it was an intentional function of the colonial settlement. And, you know, this is another thing that I, that I tried to show. Um, one, one, one other part of that there is that the, the brutality and the violence of the colonial of, of these colonial mandates um, was in a sense dictated by the strength of the resistance uh, to to their role. That's right. Yeah, which is, which I mean, is not it's not something which necessarily appears in, in kind of a lot of people's mental, you know, you know, easy mental maps of what the uh, colonial moment in the Middle East was like. That's right. I mean, the 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 testimony of the League of Nations is especially poignant and evocative in this in this in this respect, you know, because the the, the petitions are flowing in, and the um, and the, you know you can't argue with the with the kind of protests that people are making. They're saying, why is it why why are they killing us in order to deliver civilization and uh, and and um, and self determination to our country? And we didn't ask for them, you know, we didn't want any of this. We want to be on our own. And, and the League of Nations in the first instance says, so what about that? Why is it necessary to destroy these villages? Because they, they might be harboring rebels. And by the end of the revolt in Syria, the, the League of Nations is on board. They've decided, okay, right. Well, if, if, if we discredit you, which is to say the colonial powers, you're going to discredit us and the whole house of the cards is going to collapse. So we have a we have an interest in in supporting this system that we've all colluded in in creating, and it's it's kind of it's kind of horrifying, you know, to see unfold this kind of this kind of compromise with in initially well-meaning international um, diplomats and bureaucrats in Geneva, where they they come to the conclusion that you know the institution of the League of Nations. Is is not is dependent upon a counterinsurgency operation, uh, and you know it's it's, uh, it's pretty bleak. For sure, <laughs> one of one of the things which is interesting in kind of the way the story is told is it de-exceptionalizes the the Great Palestinian Revolt of 1936, 
by kind of putting it into the context of this series of revolts against the mandates. Um, and as you said, with same tactics, sometimes the same, uh, you know, kind of military leadership and the like. Um, and I thought that was kind of an interesting way of approaching that. Yeah, well, I mean, what I wanted, what I was trying to do, and, you know, it's also the case that we have resources now that weren't available a few years ago, but what I wanted to do was kind of try to, to unfold the narrative as it would have been experienced by a person living in one of these capitals. Um, and so, you know, if you were in Damascus, for example, um, the, 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 the press was allowed to cover exhaustively what was going on in Palestine and in Iraq. I mean, if you were a journalist in Damascus and you covered, you know, the, the brutality of the high commissioner, you'd end up in jail. But if you covered the brutality of the of the British high commissioner in Palestine, no problem, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> because the imperial rivalry is completely operative. Um, and so, you know, this the the people in Damascus were 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 obsessively following the news in Palestine, and people in Palestine were obsessively following the news in in uh, in Damascus. And so, I, I wanted to get at that, you know, and and also to show how. The, the policies, I mean, the, by the middle of the 30s, the colonial regimes are in deep crisis and the opposition is, is, is comprehensive all over. And so, you know, in a way, the French and the British kind of collude. Um, well, not in a way. I mean, they, they, there's a, there's a, a sense of, of just impending disaster, uh, not only in, in the Middle East, but also in Europe with the rise of, of Hitler and 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 uh, and and the annexation of various places, and so you know the British and the French are by the late '30s, by the time of the Palestine Revolt, they are realizing once again that that the survival of their empires is dependent upon their cooperation and willingness to be astonishingly brutal against all of these movements of opposition at the same time. And you know they some of the things that they did, like overthrowing the Iraqi government, I think our new discoveries, um, but, you know, and maybe, maybe assassinating Yassin al-Hashmi, plotting to assassinate um, um, uh, uh, um, Amin al-Husseini, the Mufti in Jerusalem. Uh, they definitely were, were plotting to, to, to kill these people and get them out of the scene. Um, you know, so, so it's a, I mean, they were, they considered it a very desperate situation. So speaking of uh, the Iraqi government, uh, one of the places where this kind of post-Ottoman generation seems to show up, you know, most obviously is in Faisal's court um, and kind of the people who become the state builders uh, on both sides of the political divide. So yeah. say a little bit about that. Well, I mean, Faisal is an interesting character because, you know, I mean, Churchill famous, well, not famously, I think, I mean, I, I found this quote, but he, you know, he's, he's kind of a crude man. And when it, especially when it comes to dealing with, with people he doesn't think of as his, as his equals. And so when they install Faisal on the throne in Iraq, and this person named Kinahan Cornwallis is involved in this process most intimately. And, and uh, you know, they, they're discussing how they're gonna manage Faisal and, uh, and get what they need, you know, which is a basing contract, oil, oil concessions, and, and a treaty. Um, and Churchill says, well, Faisal will be a long time and looking for a third throne. So Faisal, <laughs> Faisal, you know, he makes his peace with this. King Faisal becomes an instrument 
of, of British colonial policy in Iraq. Um, and, you know, his, a lot of people think his, his death at, I think, 48 in, in 1933 is a bit suspicious. And I, I'm beginning to think that it's a bit suspicious too, but I can't exactly find, figure out why after this, this, you know, this dramatic state visit that he has to, uh, to London, I mean, he's really feted, you know, more than Clemenceau had been at the end of the First World War. Um, and I mean, King George meets him at Victoria Station. <laughs> so I don't understand why they would have wanted to assassinate him, you know, a couple months later. But the people who surround Faisal, some of them are, are completely compliant, like Nouria Said and Jafar al-Askari and others who are early members of the Arab revolt. And others, like Yassin al-Hashimi, are absolutely not compliant. And for the British government in 1936 and 1937, but 35, 36, those people become profoundly threatening. Um, and, and, and they are the ones, I mean, the British government, in, especially in the foreign office, they think they've got another auditor. They think that Yassin is about to become auditor of, of, of the Arab countries. And they're terrified, absolutely terrified. And they pull out the stops to get him out of the way because it's the, the consequences of an oil rich state um, where the, when the Royal Navy needs all that fuel oil, uh, a, you know, adjoining um, uh, the, the oil fields in, in, in Iran and the Abadan refinery of, of Anglo-Persian oil and all of this stuff, the, the two rivers, you know, the Germans back in, in, uh, in, in Iraq on the road to India and all of this stuff. I mean, they are really panicking. Um, and, you know, the consequences are, are that the government's overthrown. Um, the the uh, Yassin passes from the scene and they get, they get a, a pliant government, which they end up, and then the, 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 you know, the, 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 the serious nationalists, the formidable people come back in 1941 and the British government overthrow them again. And in the Anglo, the so-called Anglo-Iraqi war of 1941, you know, this is, it's, it's not really anything that anybody spent much time on reading about, but it's, you know, these are pivotal moments for not only the British empire, but also the second world war. Uh, and it's it's really it's really interesting uh, to see it put together in this full in its full scope and not just as individual national histories. Um, and then the, on the colonial side too, the, the running yeah. throughout the book is you know the role of North African French you know uh, Maghreb administrators coming in and the role they play in Lebanon and Syria. And then as yeah. you say, you know Iraq tying it to its uh, its India and the broader imperial context. Um, it's just it's a very important corrective, I think. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I, I'm glad to hear that. I, you know, I wanted. I mean, I'd taken part in a in a conference on the mandates when I was a graduate student that took place first in Beirut and then in Aix-en-Provence, and we we had these these conferences that were organized by the French Institute in Damascus in those days, and I I thought, okay, right, everybody's talking about you know whether the British system was better or the French system, and I just thought, man, this is really silly, you know. I mean. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, uh, one historian said, what difference does it make if the boot on your neck is a British boot or a French boot? And I think, I, to me, that kind of summed it up, you know, and I thought, okay, right, well, I, I, the, it's, one, it's one history, it's one story, people experienced it all together, and, and, it, it would, and you know, we ought to try to, 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 to understand it on their terms.
Um, so, so that was what I, that was what I was trying to do. Okay. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining us. So we've been talking to Michael Provence about his new book, The Last Ottoman Generation. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's article segment, we're joined by Gamze Chabdar, Colorado State University, author of the new article, Why Women Support Conservative Parties, the Case of Turkey. Uh, Gamze, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this is a really rich and interesting article. Tell us about it. What was the major contribution? Sure. Um, in this article, I asked the question, um, why, what explains women's support for conservative parties? Because uh, conservative movements promote traditional power structures, both at home and in the market. And they also promote policies and discourses that are not women friendly. Uh, although we have seen the emergence of women's activism everywhere in the world over the last decade, it's also true that some women do support these conservative movements and parties. So my question is, what explains women's support for, for these parties? And I answer this question by using the case of Justice and Development Party in Turkey between 2002 and 2020. I have chosen this case for two reasons. First, the party enjoys high percentage of women supporters who vote for the party and who at the same time volunteer for the party. And second, the party has been in power since 2002, winning all national and local elections and forming majority governments. That's why we have enough data to look at the trends over time. And the, the degree of support for the, uh, for the AKP uh, among women is really quite remarkable. It is. Uh, women constitute um, typical uh, GDP voters, and within that category of women, housewives constitute the majority. So that's very interesting. Yes. And you situate this within um, a lot of the changes that have taken place within Turkey's political economy. Um, and you describe it as, as an intentional strategy by Prime Minister, now President Erdogan. So tell us a little, little bit about that and, and how those things are all connected. Sure. Uh, my argument in, in this article is that um, the answer to my question can be found in the clientelist networks that strategically target women and provide them with both material benefits and non-material aid. Non-material benefits include things such as cash and in-kind transfers, and non-material aid includes things such as social support and solidarity. So this is a strategic uh, policy. This is a, a policy by design. And as a result, what we see is a highly political and gendered welfare system that helps an increasing authoritarian party remain in power. And we'll, so we'll I can get go to your, into the details. Yeah, we'll get to your results in a minute. But just one of them really jumps out is the share of, of goods that are going to women for 2002 and then up to 2020, just how dramatically it grew. Right. Um, again, that's why I consider this um, a, a policy that is by design, um, because um, I, I realized by using the micro data that uh, women's share 
uh, within the welfare recipients uh, has grown significantly uh, compared to men, despite the fact that men constitute majority. And within that, um, within that category, again, uh, housewives were prioritized. So that was very interesting. Mm -hmm. so let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the research that you did uh, to support this article. Tell us a little bit about the data, this qualitative and quantitative data that you managed to pull together. Sure. Um, I use both qualitative and quantitative data that I collected during field work in Ankara. Um, the qualitative data included party and government documents, as well as social media postings of the party and its branches. And the quantitative data um, are the micro level data that include more than half a million people covering the years between 2003 and 2016. Unfortunately, I didn't have the data after that. Um, the data were gathered through annual surveys con conducted by public officials. And this is the same data that the government uses to produce aggregate data uh, published by the Turkish Statistical Institute. The raw data that I used are not typically available to researchers. I was simply lucky to find them because uh, during a very short period of time, the government was allowing the researchers to have access to it. Um, and by using uh, this raw and individual data, I was able to create new categories and examine them. For instance, I was able to look at how many of those who received public transfers were at the same time housewives. I mean, this is significant because again, in the aggregate data, you don't see this. Plus we know that a typical uh, AKP supporter or JDP supporter is woman and most of them are housewives. And I was able to demonstrate that through this micro data. Now you situate your argument, not only within clientelism, but in what you describe as uh, neoliberalism and then the an intersection with conservative Islamism. So walk us through that argument and why you see that as building the kind of networks that you see. Sure. Um... This is very important because these clientelist relations that provide both uh, material and non-material benefits do take place within the context of a global neoliberalism and Islamic conservatism. Uh, women's roles both at home and in the market are fundamentally shaped by these policies since the early 2000s in Turkey, um, because women are exclusively defined by the ruling party as mothers and wives, and they are strongly encouraged to participate in the labor market without interrupting their so-called primary roles as mothers and wives. Um, and their employment trends also reflect this reality, making their employment in part-time and informal sector growing exponentially. And as a result, women's need for welfare assistance has significantly increased over time. So in other words, what we see here is that the ruling party as, me, as the primary advocates of both policies first creates the problem and then through these welfare transfers offers the solution to the problem that it has just created. And then the Islamic conservatism comes in in terms of uh, how people view the appropriateness of these gender roles. Exactly. Um, again, women are encouraged to have at least three 
three children. Uh, of course, in the absence of uh, public uh, childcare and free um, lack of access to free and you know affordable childcare, it means that it is the woman who have to take care of those children, which significantly their, uh, limit their public roles. Now, one thing which is really interesting in, in your analysis of this is it's not only voting that you see, but also this large scale volunteerism. And tell us a little bit about the roles that you see these women playing in the, within the, the party's overall efforts. Sure. Um, the party provides um, non-material benefits to women. Uh, so this is a complementary policy to the material distribution of material benefits. And the main party organization behind this initiative is the women's branch of the party. Um, and according to the party bylaws, the women's branch is an auxiliary unit within the party organization. The branch remains highly active, reaching to millions of women. Uh, and according to the party reports, the number was about 4.7 million women uh, members as of April 2020. And the party claims that this is the largest women's organization in the world. The branch um, is highly regarded by the party leadership, especially Erdogan, who often visits the group, sets new goals, um, and attributes the electoral party's electoral success to the success of the branch. For instance, 11 months prior to the local elections of 2019, Erdogan instructed women to visit every town, every neighborhood, every street, and make sure to knock at every door so that they leave no single woman whom they didn't reach their heart, they didn't reach and win their heart. The assigned task is obviously going beyond the winnings of heart, winning hearts of women, because the expectation is to ultimately secure their votes, and of course, those of their families. Here, the often distinction that we, see, that we see between piety and charity on the one hand and politics on the other hand is blurry because the objective is clearly bought. Now, you've also seen, and the, the, the party has seen kind of declining fortunes in, in recent years. Um, and ex tell us a little bit about that and how it intersects with uh, women's support. Sure, um, really interesting um, trends are taking place and contradictory trends taking place at the same time. Uh, more recently, uh, Turkey has experienced incredible devaluation of its currency uh, and the economic crisis is still going on. And the party in the local elections um, has lost to the um, opposition party in major metropoles, including Ankara, Istanbul, and Izmir. Uh, so it no longer controls the municipalities because municipalities really play significant role in the distribution of these welfare assistance programs. Um, so that's just one trend that gives advantage to the opposition uh, and puts really in a, at a disadvantaged position, uh, the, the ruling party at a disadvantaged position. However, the uh, COVID-19 really has increased uh, the people's need for these welfare assistance. And the government has incredible uh, tools in limiting the power of the municipalities because it controls their budget. 
and it does everything possible to control the budget that goes into welfare programs through those big metropoles controlled by the opposition uh, and still controls uh, all the other uh, municipalities. And because of the increased need for this uh, welfare assistance, the government still pro has increased the number of you know, assistance programs during the COVID uh, pandemic. And if we assume that the number is just great, if we assume that in every household, there are uh, approximately four people, the number reaches about 20 million people who uh, depend on these assistance programs. 20 million is roughly about the number of votes that the AKP receives. So one last question then is thinking about the broader implications of this uh, gendered social welfare strategy that you're describing, because you argue that this has implications not just for Turkish politics, but more globally. So tell us about what you think is the, the broader significance of the research and the findings. Sure, uh, the Turkish case is unique in many respects, so we cannot generalize every finding, obviously. Um, However, I think there are important lessons to draw from the examination of this case. The first lesson is the significance of social policy uh, and the necessity of building a universal welfare program. I know I'm stating the obvious, uh, and it is only common sense to aspire to build a universal welfare system, um, perhaps. Uh, but what we call common sense is actually not that common because international institutions such as the IMF and World Bank are still advocating the provision of social services through civil society organizations and therefore undermining the creation, uh, undermining the already weak and non-universal public welfare systems in many developing countries, including many in the MENA region. That's first um, um, you know, implication. The second lesson I draw from this case is uh, about the cleavages among women's activists, activists that are increasingly becoming obvious because for a long time, the expectation was that women's involvement in conservative movements will eventually lead to more democratic practices within the party organization. And these women will conquer the party from within, if you will. But evidence suggests that women are more polarized along ideological lines, uh, and in some cases by design, uh, and finding a common ground is increasingly becoming more and more difficult. Well, really interesting research and article. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Gamze Shabdar of Colorado State University. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topical episode, we're joined by Shibli Telhami of the University of Maryland and my colleague on a new project, the Middle East Scholar Barometer. Shibli, it's always great to have you here. It's a pleasure, always. So let's talk about this project, which we started a year and a half ago. Um, it was your idea to begin with, and tell us you know, what, what, you think, what you were thinking and what we've done. You know, it's, it's interesting because at times of transition and, and crisis, as we witness often in the Middle East, uh, you see our public discourse so disconnected from events and, uh, and uh, you know, the pundits on TV uh, say things that most of us as experts uh, find, uh, you know, either inaccurate or sometimes even offensive. Uh, and I recalled, you know, back um, when the debate was being waged on the Iraq war, 
in uh, you know 2002, 2003, uh, leading up to the Iraq War, how much of a disparity there was between the scholars' opinion and the public discourse, which was very political in nature. And if you recall, I had initiated and then co-organized an ad for IR scholars, especially realists in the New York Times, um, to put ourselves on the record against the war and to say the war on Iraq was not in America's national interest. And, and obviously we didn't change the debate and we're not likely to change the debate, but it was important to put that in there, insert that in, have it for the historical record. So I thought there was we should be doing something like that with scholarship on the Middle East, for one thing, to put ourselves on the record where we are in terms of interpreting events. But sec second, it's really also important for us as scholars. A lot of the comments that I had gotten from people when I uh, put this out was, yeah, we'd like to know what other colleagues think. Because people, you know, you're living in an island in some way. Obviously, you interact with other scholars, but you more often are listening to the broader conversation, which you find unsatisfying. So I thought it would be very useful. And obviously you, you shared my opinion, which resulted yeah. in this project. And so I remember, so we brought together, we were able to get um, both uh, members of the Middle East Studies Association and members of the American Political Science Association who specialized in the Middle East. Um, my, uh, my poll maps list as well. We came up with a really nice data set, which has continued to grow uh, with each of the two, um, with now the three rounds that we've done. Um, in this last one, we added uh, members of the American Historical Association. So we're just getting a bigger and bigger sample every time. And that's, it's been really nice to see. And I've also heard that people just curious to see what we as a, as a academic community actually think about things, which isn't always what you expect. Yeah, and I, I think also the nice thing about adding other disciplines um, with varying expertise and focus is that it, it tells you something about differences among us scholars where they exist. And, and of course, there are disciplinary uh, differences, as we have noticed on some issues, but they're not that big. And, and certainly uh, the trends basically on almost all issues the same, but especially it's true of if you uh, forget membership of APSA, MESA, or AHA with the three organizations that we now poll. If you look at disciplines, political science versus non-political science, because we obviously political scientists are focused on the issues that we typically poll on. And you would think that the political scientist's opinion would be somewhat different from non-political science opinion. There, on some of the big issues like Israel-Palestine, the Iran nuclear deal, there isn't much difference really between political scientists and non-political scientists, only a few percentage points here and there. So it's kind of remarkably robust on some of the core issues that we have been measuring over time. I do think that we've seen some, for example, on the Iranian nuclear agreement, political scientists generally seem to be a little more in favor of it and more likely to believe that it will be effective. You're right, only five or six percentage points difference, but it's been consistent from poll to poll, which is kind of interesting. Um, and it's the same thing, I think, when we ask some questions about like the coup in Tunisia, do you consider it to be a coup? Is it good for democracy? You saw political scientists differing from non-political scientists a bit, but overall on some other issues, you're right. I mean, you do seem to have, generally speaking, very similar trends across disciplines, which is again, not necessarily what one might've expected. 
Yeah, and I think like the, the most robust results really are on Israel-Palestine. Yeah, and let's, how talk, people let's talk about that one. We've asked the same yeah. questions on Israel-Palestine um, for three rounds now, and uh, the results there, they've gotten some attention. Let's talk about those a bit. Well, first of all, the, the one nice story here is that we're tra tracking this over time. So we at least see whether the community is shifting depending on events as they happen. So that's one thing that's interesting. So there are really two core questions. One, one question is about whether people think it's too late for two states uh, or not. And one question about how they describe the reality as it now exists in Israel and Palestine. And we have seen relatively robust results over the three polls, not only in terms of the time, we have roughly 60% average over the three polls uh, who, who uh, say that the current reality in Israel-Palestine is a one-state reality akin to apartheid, while we give them, of course, a lot of other options that, that fill in the space, and they choose that particular option. But one thing that did change and has been changing is the assessment uh, of the probability of a two-state solution. What we found really that that has incrementally, uh, the pessimism over that issue has increased. So you know, we started with the low 50s to now 61% uh, who think it's already too late for two states. And obviously very few think it's uh, possible within the next 10 years. And that has been robust across, the, those two results are really interesting in that the robustness across the fields is there. Now, certainly the, uh, there's some sense of there being responsiveness to things that are in the news. So I remember the second round of the barometer came out right around the time, or it was in the field right around the time that uh, Human Rights Watch had just released its big report on, uh, on, it, on apartheid. And there was the clashes in Jerusalem uh, and the war with Gaza or the exchange with Gaza right around that time. And we did see a little bit of a spike um, in that sense. Yeah, the spike... Yeah, it did. And, and we actually, when we wrote, it, wrote that up, we, we, we identified as a spike based on what, what transpired at the time, if you recall, in our Washington mm -hmm. Post monkey cage article. But it was that we went from 59%, the prior poll to 65%. And now we're back at 60% in terms of people who say it's a one state reality, uh, uh, akin to apartheid uh, across, across fields. So that's been interesting. Yeah. One thing which was interesting in this survey, and it was your idea that, that we break this down, was to also ask about Israel proper, you know, separating out the West Bank and Gaza. Would you apply that designation of akin to apartheid to Israel itself? And there the numbers was much lower, which really did, at least to me, suggest that people weren't just offering a knee jerk reaction to, you know, like a buzzword in the news. But they were actually thinking pretty carefully about where and how the term applies. At least that was yeah, my interpretation. I, right, and uh, I think I think it's it was kind of the reason I actually thought it would be good to include it there is that there was this the amnesty report particular generated some questions about the differentiation between uh, you know Israel's relation with the West Bank of Gaza versus Israel relations with its own citizens uh, uh, the pre nineteen sixty seven uh, Israel and uh, and so. Uh, it is interesting because we, we, we find like uh, half of the percentage of people who say it's a, a one state reality akin to apartheid that we found uh, when you refer to the West Bank and Gaza and I'll say that about Israel 
proper in its relationship with its non-Jewish citizens. They're mostly Palestinian Israeli citizens, about 31%, I believe, who said it's a one-state reality akin to apartheid, with nearly half saying it's a, a, a actually a slight majority, I believe it was, uh, that, that said it was a, a, a democratic state uh, with, with deep structural inequality. So that, that, that showed that, you know, scholars are really differentiating the two. It's not that they, they think that um, uh, the reality inside is rosy, but certainly very different uh, from the relationship with the West Bank and Gaza. Now, we've also tried to be responsive to uh, big things in the news and to try and get something like a snapshot of how scholars are thinking about particular events in, in real time. And so for this, this survey, the one uh, that just that we just published, um, we asked about the, the impact of Ukraine and uh, how that might be affecting um, the region. And we, uh, there were some quite interesting findings there, I thought in terms of the expected impact on American standing, on Russian standing. What struck, what jumped out to you as the most interesting findings there? Well, first, that, that China is the big winner, right? I mean, you expected that Russia's influence would decline in the view of the scholars, I think. Uh, that, of course, is based on an assessment about the ultimate outcome of the exactly. confrontation. And, and of course, we'll, we'll see. But as, you know, these things are time sensitive in terms of responding to events, and at the time, it looked like Russia wasn't doing very well and getting a black eye. And, um, you know, and if you look at the UN, uh, uh, you know, condemnations and uh, the, the large majority in the General Assembly and so forth, it looked like Russia was really on the losing end uh, internationally. And but interestingly, it didn't reflect so positively on the U.S. More people think it'll be the U.S. influence would would be slightly higher than lower. But um China is obviously the one that, that, that comes up. And the other interesting part on this is that um, uh, if you uh, look at how it would influence alliances between the US and regional countries, it was interesting that uh, scholars identified Turkey and Qatar as the two biggest beneficiary of the relationship. Not so surprising actually, when you think about it. Uh, and they think that uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia would be slight losers, not huge losers, but slight losers in that relationship, uh, while Israel wasn't going to be impacted much. No, no effect at all. Well, I, I think because I think most Middle East scholars see the Israeli-American uh, relationship as robust and immune to changes. Uh, uh, I, I think that's really the broad assessment yeah. uh, overall. But, you know, one thing about the impact of Ukraine, though, that's worth mentioning. Um, that is when we ask, as, as we can see in this poll and in every poll, a majority of scholars think that uh, return to the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, would uh, make it less likely that Iran would develop nuclear weapons in the next 10 years. That has been a, a robust finding. It still is the case. Uh, when, and that's basically where most of the scholars give the Biden administration the highest marks. They think that the fact that Biden is pursuing this deal is really the best thing he's doing in the Middle East, if you grade his policies. And, but they saw that the Ukraine war was diminishing slightly the prospect, more diminishing than increasing, not hugely. I think that was very specifically a function of the fact that as we went uh, into the field, uh, there was this announcement from Russia that they were tying it 
to the removing their own sanctions. Because I think if we had done that two days before or a week before, we would have gotten exactly the opposite result. And the reason for that is you would think that uh, uh, for one thing, the, the administration needed a deal, the, the, the US administration needed to deal with Iran even more than before because of getting 1.2 uh, million barrels a day of oil on the market for one thing, but also diminished the prospect that either Israel or the US would undertake military attack against Iran in light of uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine. So you would think that uh, this would have led to exactly the opposite in terms of the incentive structure. But that one piece of news about Russia is, I think, what impacted the opinion on this issue. No, that's really interesting. Um, I guess one last big broad basket of, um, of questions that we've asked uh, consistently uh, has been about political stability in the region and uh, evaluations of the Arab uprisings and their aftermath. And I was quite surprised in this round um, that so in, in previous rounds, we saw a pretty consistent uh, set of responses along the lines of the Arab uprisings are still ongoing, that there's a significant risk or, or, or possibility of political instability linked to something like uprisings. But in this survey, we asked about specific countries. And for the most part, people saw where almost nobody said that there was a high likelihood of significant regime threatening instability in any of the countries that we surveyed. And, you know, maybe like 30 percent saw some likelihood in Egypt and uh, Turkey, I think. Um, but overall, it was a much lower number once we went specific. And I'm curious what you made of that. Well, first, I think. Um... You know, the, the wording obviously matters in this particular case. And we have, you know, as, as uh, you well know, we, we both have an advisory committee uh, of scholars, of six scholars who advise us on, on formulating the questions. We debated this a lot in terms of how we word the question of stability. So we didn't take that lightly. And we settled on regime threatening uh, instability, not just instability, because we wanted to make it a little bit harder you know, sort of to expect something that would be other than what we typically assume to be instability, because you could say mm -hmm. most of the Middle East is somewhat unstable. So maybe the introduction of that word uh, generated a different kind of reaction. Uh, so I'm not sure. Uh, and I think uh, this is something uh, we can probe next round. So I think when we, when we write the next set of questions in six months, I think we should brainstorm about how we might uh, tease this out to figure out what is this gap between when we ask them about the continuation of the Arab uprisings versus specific questions about instability, how can we tease this out to get a more concise answer? Well, it's really interesting stuff. And I'm really glad that we're able to partner together in uh, producing uh, this, uh, this biannual snapshot of the opinion of Middle Eastern scholars and experts. And I look forward to talking with you six months from now about what we find next time. It's always a pleasure, Mark.